Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Energy stage and this one of the part of our Cambridge University series lectures. This morning's lecturer, Catherine Barnard, is Professor of EU Law at the University of Cambridge, Senior Fellow in the UK in the UK in a Changing Europe programme. This is a non-partisan organisation doing research and public engagement into Brexit. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Catherine Barnard. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming. It's a great honour and a privilege uh, to be here to talk about this really quite vexed and complicated subject. So I'm talking about me, you, the EU, and Brexit. And specifically, I'm going to be talking about uh, the future direction of the negotiations. But in order to get there, I'm going to ask three questions. Crudely, what happened? Secondly, what now? And thirdly, what next? And that's going to structure the talk for the next 30, 35 or so minutes. And then I'll take any questions that you might have. And I should say, I just emphasize, um, because I am part of the UK and a changing Europe, we are non-partisan, so I'm not here to push a leave or a remain agenda. We try and take an, an academic view about uh, the situation that we're in and where we're going, going forward. So let's start with briefly what happened. And this bit is the bit that you all know um, really very well indeed, because this time last year, this is what we were uh, living through. To put it very simply, the bus. The bus was brilliant. It absolutely encapsulated the leave message in three very simple sentences, which were deeply appealing to many people in a way that the Remain campaign simply failed to engage with. You've got the 350 million a week figure, which is uh, incorrect. It's somewhere in the region of about 270, 280 million, which goes to the European Union as a, a membership fee. We're told it was going to be used to fund the NHS instead. And crucially, let's take back control. And the control message actually was really very powerful because it, it was control about a number of things. It was control about money, yes, but it was also control about borders and it was also control about laws. And this is one of my favourite cartoons, which actually dates um, back to the mid-1990s. And I think it really quite helpfully encapsulates the concerns that many people have over loss of control, the loss of parliamentary sovereignty, as you can see from the cartoon. You've got Brussels rules OK, you've got Big Ben under new management, and uh, crucially, any political queries call Brussels, not um, Westminster. But also in this um, cartoon, in the bottom left, you've got the lovely image that uh, no longer will beer be sold by the pint, but it will be lager being sold by the litre. And actually that 
really flags up another issue which underpinned uh, the success of the Leave campaign, which was about loss of identity, loss of British identity, and actually what the research has shown since the referendum is that people were prepared to vote against their economic interests. They know that Brexit will cost, but they want to get their identity back. And so this is just flagged up very effectively in this cartoon. So you've got concern about loss of control of budget, concern of con loss of control about laws, but also this, migration. Now, this is a collage of a number of front pages from uh, some of the tabloid papers, Daily Mail and Sun in particular. And what you have here is a drip feed of quite strong anti-immigrant sentiment. And from an EU lawyer's point of view, what's so striking about uh, these front pages is that they fail to make a distinction between, on the one hand, uh, EU migration, so migrants coming from Poland, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Spain and Portugal, who have a right to move in the same way that British people have a right to move to other member states, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you've got migration, or more to the point, refugees fleeing from Syria. And the point is that no distinction was made between those two separate groups. On the one hand, EU nationals who've got the right to move, and on the other, uh, refugees coming from Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq who do not have the right to come into the UK. And at the time of the referendum, EU migration was running at about 270,000 a year. Non-EU migration, over which the UK government has full control, was running at a higher level, not significantly, about 277,000 a year. And this poster, this was the uh, UKIP poster just before uh, the referendum, just before the murder of Joe Cox, conflated the two issues because it looks like you've got millions of people turning up at Dover. In fact, it's a photo which was taken on the border with Hungary, and it's not about EU migration, but about non-EU migration. These are mainly um, Syrian and Afghan refugees trying to flee war-torn parts of the world and uh, trying to get into the UK. And if you look... Um, at the picture, you can see it's all male. There's almost no children in the picture, almost no women in the picture, and I'm afraid also um, almost all dark, darker skinned. And of course, this is what some people were very concerned about, about the tone of the referendum campaign. Nevertheless, as we know, there was a vote to leave the European Union um, on the 23rd of June, and that is where we are at. So what now? I'm going to introduce you to Article 50. 
Now, up until recently, um, nobody had even heard of Article 50. Now we're all experts on Article 50. I just want to talk very briefly about Article 50. I realise that talking law, particularly uh, first thing in the morning, turns most people's stomachs. But it is actually quite important to understand what's, what Article 50 says in order to be able to understand what happens next. So paragraph one says that any member state can withdraw in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. We don't have a written constitution, so our own constitutional requirements are not clear. Secondly, once there has been notification of withdrawal, which is um, what happened on the 29th of March 2017, the European Council, that is the heads of state of the member states of the European Union, will issue guidelines, and I'll return to these in a bit, and those guidelines will frame the negotiations. And then we talk about negotiating the divorce. Now, this is really quite important because Article 50 is only about the divorce. It is not about the future relationship. The two are totally distinct. Even though the UK government thinks and talks about them being done at the same time, this is not what the legal provisions provide for. So you've got the divorce under Article 50, and the divorce will be the agreement which will be negotiated by qualified majority voting. That's important. That's 20 out of the 27 member states have got to agree to the agreement. And it's got to be approved by the European Parliament. European Parliament has been grossly underestimated in the UK political discussions. The, UK, the European Parliament doesn't like what it sees. It can block the agreement. Now, it's true that the divorce must take into account the arrangements for a future relationship, but it's only about taking into account. Article 50 is not about the future deal. And the significance of that will become apparent uh, later on. And then you've got paragraph three, and that's the ticking clock, the two-year period. And the two years, the clock started counting down on the 29th of um, March 2017. It will expire end of March 2019. And if no agreement is reached by the end of March 2019, the treaties will cease to apply. In other words, we'll have chaotic Brexit, which will be very damaging for the UK. Yes, that period can be extended, but it can be extended only by the unanimous agreement of the 27, and it's thought unlikely that they will agree to that. So that's the structure of Article 50. I just want to go back to the first paragraph, and the first paragraph is any state can notify and can notify in accordance with its own constitutional requirements. As I said, we don't know what our constitutional requirements were. The government, Theresa May, said, well, of course I'm going to do it because that's what being prime minister is about. It's about executive powers, and I am going to notify the European Union. Gina Miller, on the other hand, had other ideas, and Gina Miller said, actually, this is so important... This notification is so important because it starts the ticking clock. And at the end of the t that period, 
we shall be leaving the European Union and losing the rights of EU membership, including the rights of free movement, that it should be a decision taken by the British Parliament. Now, as you know, she took the case to the court, the High Court, and the High Court um, decided that, yes, Parliament should be involved in the, in the notification process. And then you get a backlash from papers like uh, the Daily Mail. And to lawyers, this was one of the most troubling days because to see personal vindictive attacks on judges who were doing their job is really very troubling, even more troubling that nobody in the government thought to stand up for the judiciary and say, we have an independent judiciary, we're very proud of it. And so what you have is you've got the three judges attacked as enemies of the people and accused of defying the Brexit vote. Of course, they were not defying the Brexit vote. All they were saying was that Parliament needed to have its say. Online, it was far more acute. The judges who blocked Brexit, we're told, one founded a European law group, another charged the taxpayer millions, and the third is an openly gay ex-Olympic fencer. It's not entirely clear to me what would have been worse. Would it have been better if he'd been a closet gay or perhaps merely an amateur fencer? But anyway, the combination <laughs> was pretty lethal. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gina Miller is subject to huge numbers of attacks, and I'm afraid I fear there's, there's some inherent racism. Just look at the pictures of her in two different papers. And the personal vilification of Gina Miller, this is the politer version um, that um, I can show you. She's, um, she's received so much worse than that. So for lawyers, this was a rather low point because for lawyers, what we see happening is here, happening here is that actually you've got um, a very fair process, judges doing their job, Supreme Court confirms that there needs to be an act of parliament. And this is why this cartoon has a degree of resonance and a degree of irony. I don't know if you can read it, maybe too small, but the British people want parliamentary sovereignty. Think of that cartoon I showed at the beginning. And British law applied by British judges in British courts. Remember, it was the Supreme Court that said parliament has got to have its say, but not yet. And this is the irony of the situation and how confused the messaging actually is. Well, for Lowe, there was a bill, and uh, the bill goes by a very boring name of the European Union Notification and Withdrawal Act. That is it. That was what triggered, um, was used to authorise Theresa May to trigger Article 50, which she duly did on the 29th of uh, March, and uh, the sun uh, made it very clear indeed. So that's um, uh, what has happened pretty much to date. The crucial question then is what next? Now, as far as what next is concerned, this is where we get into some really rather technical issues, which I'll try and um, explain and talk through to you. So, as I've said, we've got the Article 50 um, negotiations. Now, what's very striking is that the EU itself has been tremendously organised and um, hugely prepared 
for these negotiations. And so what you see happening is you have the European Council issued draft guidelines. And then these guidelines were very recently confirmed. The European Council, if you remember, is the heads of state um, of the European Union. And these guidelines uh, say various things, but various things which will really make a significant difference in the negotiation process. First of all, they say that they want the UK as a close partner, but they will not allow a sector-by-sector -sector approach. Very bad news for higher education, because higher education will be very significantly affected by Brexit. Approximately um, a quarter to a third of our teaching staff are EEA nationals uh, at postgraduate level. About a quarter of our students are EEA nationals. And so we will be very badly affected by uh, the Brexit. And it, there had been hope that because this is a high-skilled sector that a special deal might be made. No, that is ruled out um, by the European Council guidelines. Also, the European Council has committed itself to transparency. And they have been as good as their word. They have a website. They put all the documents up there. And indeed, you can sign up for notifications um, if you want to see what's um, come in recently. The UK does not want transparency. They believe that negotiations are better conducted uh, without the full glare of publicity. But at least on the EU side, we'll have a greater idea of what um, is going on and what is happening. Furthermore, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Absolutely crucial, because it means that um, playing games around the budget and trying to, off, uh, trying to play off one state against another will not work. You've got to have a whole package. It's all got to be agreed. You can't leave other bit, one bit to later on because it's in the box marked too difficult. And the EU is committed to negotiating as one. And they have been remarkably successful so far. They have spoken with one voice. There has been attempts to try and um, uh, set off one member state against another. Has not, it, that has not been successful. So those are the, the, the key principles coming from the EU side about what the negotiations will look like. Now, the negotiations are going to be conducted in three phases. Phase one are about immediate matters. Phase one is about what needs to go into the divorce agreement under Article 50. Crucially, there are three main matters. There are actually about five or six, but the three main ones which are thought to be really difficult are one, the budget, how much the UK will have to pay, Two, citizens' rights, that is the rights of um, EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU. And thirdly, the Northern Ireland border, is there going to be a hard border between North and South of Ireland or are special arrangements going to be made? And if they are, uh, does that mean there's going to be a hard border somewhere else? Now, these are all really difficult matters. And the EU is insisting that no progress can be made on even thinking about a future deal until these three matters are sorted out. 
David Davis, on the other hand, who's the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, is adamant that he won't agree to anything on the budget until all the other things that the UK wants, including a future trade deal, is sorted out. So we're already set on a collision course, even at phase one of the negotiations. So we've got phase one is looking at three very difficult issues. And then you've got other still quite difficult issues. You've got the EU agencies that are currently in the UK, the Medicines Agency, for example, what's going to happen to that? Where is it going to move to? The UK is going to have to pay, according to the EU, for the costs of relocating the 1,000 staff. The fact is that the buildings in Canary Wharf, with a hugely long lease, um, which the UK will have to carry on paying, there are over 750 international agreements that the UK is part of as a, as a result of its membership of the European Union. What's going to happen to those agreements? There's a very good piece in the Financial Times yesterday listing all of the agreements. And also at this stage, there is going to be discussions about the institutional arrangements which will supervise the um, withdrawal agreement, the divorce, but it will also be the embryonic secretariat for anything going forward. So these phase one negotiations are really important. These phase one negotiations, according to the EU, will um, not proceed beyond phase one until sufficient progress, terms undefined, um, has been made. And only if sufficient progress has been made on these really thorny issues do we move to phase two? And phase two is about the overall framework of what a future deal might look like. Remember, I said that we're talking about a two-stage process, the divorce and the future deal. Now, as I'll explain in a moment, the future deal is legally difficult to do. So it's very likely that there'll have to be transitional arrangements which will bridge the divorce to the future deal. And they won't even talk about the transitional arrangements until sufficient progress has been made on the phase one issues. There is a further hostage to fortune in the phase two, which is that the EU has said that if there is going to be transitional, or if there are going to be transitional arrangements between the divorce and the future deal, those transitional arrangements will have to be under the control of the EU machinery, the EU machinery including the European Court of Justice, sitting in Luxembourg, and that has always been a red line for the UK, red line that we will not be under the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice. So what you see going on is a very self-confident EU, and a self-confident EU which at the moment has only got authorization to negotiate phase one. The Commission has only got authorization to negotiate phase one. So any idea of trying to do some big package deal which has the divorce and the future arrangements all wrapped up in one package is legally impossible for the EU because the EU is a system based on what's called, in the jargon, attribution of powers. In other words, the EU can only do the things that it's expressly been given the powers to do. 
and the Commission at the moment has only been given the powers to negotiate phase one. Now, there's talk about trying to push the EU to do phase one over the summer and move, move to phase two in October, with a view to trying to get phase three, some future deal, done very quickly. But in reality, the phase one issues are so complicated. Northern Ireland border in particular is so difficult to sort out that the idea that it can be knocked out over the summer is, um, frankly, naive. Now, you can see how desperate things are. I'm told that, um, as you know, Brussels usually goes to sleep for the month of August. The negotiating team, Barnier's negotiating team, have been given two weeks off in August. So they clearly think it's going to be a big issue because um, it's going to take all summer. But it's, it really is complicated. And just to give you a flavour of how complicated it is, you're not meant to be able to read this slide. It's deliberately um, illegible. This is the legislation in the field of air transport. This, of course, is absolutely crucial sector. And trying, if you think that this is being replicated sector by sector, I'm told that there are about 700 lines of inquiry, 700 different areas of law activity that need to be looked at. It just gives you a flavour of how complicated this is going to be. So just to recap, while I, I apologise for being so technical for a moment, but what I'm trying to show you is that the phase one is all that the EU's got the power to negotiate at the moment. There's no talk at the moment of what a future deal might look like because the EU can only negotiate phase one. And because the EU can only act in the fields it's been given express powers to act in, Therefore, the idea of clever negotiating tactics and all sorts of very clever things can't be done. So, in fact, the EU is negotiating in a straitjacket. And any talk that this is going to be easy and we'll do a deal, some people you hear, I've heard John Redwood say you can do a deal in the afternoon. This, I'm afraid, is just incorrect. It is a vastly complicated and legally constrained environment. So, having explained some of the technicalities, I've said to you that there are these two, you've got the divorce, the future arrangement. The divorce will be done by qualified majority voting, so you don't need all of the member states to agree. But then, what about the future relationship? What about the um, phase three future deal that um, has been so much talked about? Now, the future deal cannot be done under Article 50. Article 50 is only about the divorce. And what you will hear more about, what will become the new Article 50, is the different legal provisions which will dictate how and what the future deal might look like. And those future, um, uh, those articles, those Provisions are listed there for you, Articles 207, 217, and 218. Now, this might be too much um, first thing in the morning, but 207 was the basis for the agreement that the, UK, the EU entered into with Canada, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, and 217 is the legal basis for the deal that the EU entered into with um, Ukraine. And it's thought likely that those deals might be something of a model for the UK um, and the EU going forward. But 
there's a problem. And the problem is that, as I said to you, the EU can only act in the area it's expressly been given the powers to act in. If the EU hasn't got powers, then the member states have got to join in in order to be able to negotiate the agreement. And a good example of an area over which the EU's got very little power is education. So if we've got this special deep partnership, which is what Theresa May has been talking about, if we've got this special deep partnership, the, it may well mean that you have what's called a mixed agreement, an agreement which the EU has to sign and the member states. Bad news for that from the UK's point of view is if the member states need to be got on board as well, so do their national parliaments, ratification by the national parliaments, of which there are 38. So it only takes one national or regional parliament, like Wallonia in Belgium, which temporarily blocked the EU's deal with Canada. It only takes Wallonia to say, we don't like the look of the deal between the UK and the EU, and the future deal is curtains. So there is a real problem in going forward and so at the moment, there are attempts to being made to explore, could we have a more limited deal which doesn't require the involvement of all of those national parliaments? And because it's so difficult to get this future deal, again, that's where the transitional arrangements will come in to act as a bridge. Now, what might that future deal look like? Now, this is probably not terribly appropriate, but toilet humour is probably good um, when you're dealing with difficult things, and it is Steve Bell. So the question is, are we going for a hard Brexit or a soft and stronger Brexit? Now, when the referendum um, took place last summer, there was quite a lot of talk that we might have a soft Brexit, and soft Brexit means going into the European economic area. Now, the European economic area is sometimes described as doing a Norway, and doing a Norway is uh, what um, it's even some of the leave, prominent Leave campaigners, like um, Daniel Hannan said, we should stay in the single market, which is what Norway does. And that was described as a soft Brexit. The pros would be that we would stay in the single market. The cons would be we would still be subject to EU rules and the jurisdiction of the EFTA court, which tends to follow the, the Court of Justice's decisions. And we'd still have to pay. Norway is the 10th largest contributor to the EU budget. And so Theresa May ruled that out as a possibility. And she made it very clear in her Lancaster House speech uh, in January 2017 that we would be going for a hard Brexit, i.e. coming out of the single market, coming out of the customs union, but retaining some sort of free trade arrangement with the EU of a kind which has never yet been clarified. So that's hard Brexit, i.e. no longer membership of the single market. However, the difficulties of disentangling ourselves are becoming very apparent, particularly to the civil service who are having to deliver this. Remember, the civil service is 25% smaller than it was in 2010. They've lost a huge amount of capacity. And even areas like the, foreign off, uh, the, sorry, the Home Office, which is going to have to manage 
the 3.8 million EEA nationals who are currently here, their budget has been frozen until 2020. So there is a tremendous capacity issue. So it may be that one possibility is that in the transitional period, the period between the end of the divorce and the future arrangement, that we come out of the EU through something of a softer Brexit. And here, if I can have the liberty of just um, mentioning this is the me bit of the me, you and Brexit, the title. Um, I've been doing public engagement work um, quite extensively in the east of England. We've been going into schools and we've been going into uh, prisons. We've been going into community centres and we've been talking to people about Brexit and what Brexit might look like. East of England's quite interesting because Cambridge itself very strongly remain, but Boston, Spalding, these places in Lincolnshire had the highest votes to leave. So you have very different uh, perspectives within actually a very small um, uh, geographic area. What was very striking to us is that when things were explained to people about the complexity and the time that it's all going to take, there was a remarkable consensus that some sort of EEA, European Economic Area, Norway-type arrangement, might be best, at least in the short term, in order to smooth the passage um, out of the European Union. But, of course, we also know that Theresa May has said they're not going to do that. But it may be that necessity is the mother of invention. So, timeline, basically where we're at, we've had the notification, we've had the European Council guidelines, negotiations are due to start um, 10 days or so after the general election. They will occur in earnest um, for about um, 12 to 15 months. And that's quite an important limitation, because although I said you've got two years... The clock has already ticked down. We're already now at the um, start of June, so we've already lost um, a couple of months. And, of course, we've also had the election called unexpectedly, which has slowed the process down. In reality, the, it's like, thought likely that the negotiations will, last, um, will be in earnest in the autumn, and they must finish probably by um, the autumn of 2018. Why? Because remember I said the European Parliament has got to agree, and the European Parliament needs time to assess what the deal might look like. So working back, we need to be out by the 29th of March 2019. There's got to be factored in a six-month period for the European Parliament to have its say. Also, the UK Parliament needs to have its say. UK government says also all those 38 national and regional parliaments need to have their say on a future deal. But I said to you, the future deal is likely to be significantly into the future because of the sequencing that I've tried to explain to you. So actually, there is a vast amount of complexity to be sorted out in the um, next year or so, year to 15 months. And then there's a problem. <laughs> and that's money. It's a really serious problem. You may recall that the figure that we originally saw 
was, uh, the Commission started talking about that there is a Brexit bill of 60 billion euros, so 55 or so million pounds. Now, um, the trouble is, um, when the UK goes, because we are a net contributor to the European Union, um, it's going to leave a very significant hole in the EU budget. And that hole has got to be filled in one of two ways. Either the other big states pay in more, or the smaller states, the recipient states, receive less. And we're in the middle of... Uh, Brexit will occur in the middle of budget negotiations. The budget negotiations occur on a, a five- to seven-year uh, process, and we will be, Brexit will happen to take place just when the budget negotiations are in full swing, when the reality of the loss of the UK's contribution um, will be most keenly felt. So the French and the Poles and a number of others have been uh, digging around, opening a, few cupboard, uh, door, uh, opening a few cupboard doors and opening a few drawers, and discovered actually they think that our Brexit bill should be more in the region of um, 100 billion euros or 92 billion uh, pounds. Now, this is, of course, huge, huge sums of money. It's complicated because it's, it's not a Brexit fee, as some of the press portray. It's not a fee for leaving. It's a settling up of liabilities that we have committed ourselves to. And depending on how you cut the sums, it is um, going to be um, expensive. And there are a lot of things that have got to be paid for. British civil servant pensions, for example. Uh, there are com commitments under various uh, regional funds that we have already entered into. There's a lot of money at stake. Now, we won't be presented with a bill for whatever it is on the 29th of March 2019. It will be phased, and it will also likely to be rolled up with any agreement that we might enter into about programmes that we still want to participate in, like Horizon 2020. But the fact is, it's a huge sum of money. And this is where Theresa May's rhetoric in the run-up to the elections has become so important. She's already started to say, no deal is a better than a bad deal. And the reason why she's saying this is because she's beginning to realise just how difficult the Brexit negotiation is going to be. Difficult, both it just difficult because the negotiation is difficult, but also the sheer complexity of it all. And the money is a big stumbling block for a lot of people. And so it may be easier and for short-term political gain to say, right, these negotiations are becoming too complicated, we can't get what we want, we will walk out and we won't pay a penny. And there is a, it's thought a 50-50 chance that this might happen, and it might happen within six months. And so you've got that would be chaotic Brexit, because there would be no plans at all. There would be no plans for what to happen about planes taking off and landing. There will be absolute chaos in the financial markets. There will be no provision for what's going to happen to passporting arrangements in the financial services sector. And it will also leave um, UK nationals currently living and working in other member states totally exposed, because overnight they will become... Um, Third, so-called third country nationals, which is the EU jargon for non-EU nationals. Chaotic Brexit, I think, would be absolutely disastrous, um, and therefore I fundamentally disagree with her view that no deal is better than a bad deal. 
because no deal really would be, I think, absolutely catastrophic. But I think there is a reasonable chance it might happen because of the problem over budget. Now, fortunately, we've always got Matt to cheer us up. I don't know if you're a Matt cartoon fan, but... <laughs> That's Matt. <laughs> That's Matt from the Daily Telegraph, who um, oh, who always who always cheers us up. So there is a reasonable chance that the whole thing just may collapse uh, within six months' um, time. And I've already shown you, because of the, the tram lines in which the EU's negotiating mandate is set, they insist that the budget's got to be dealt with first, and this may lead to absolute um, a, a, a collision between the UK and the EU, and will set a very, very bad um, tone for any future relationship. And indeed, and this is my final... Um, substantive slide. The Great Repeal Bill is already preparing for this. Now, the Great Repeal Bill, the GRB, is the bill that will take us out of the European Union at domestic level. So far, I've been talking about the arrangements going on at EU level. Um, the Great Repeal Bill will be delivering Brexit domestically. I should say it won't be called the Great Repeal Bill. It'll have a very boring name, like the name for the Article 50 Notification Bill, but it's called the Great Repeal Bill um, in the white paper because it makes it very um, uh, sound significant and important, which, of course, it is. Briefly, the Great Repeal Bill will deliver three things. One, it will repeal the European Communities Act, Two, it will convert EU law. And three, it will correct EU law. So those are the three pillars of the Great Repeal Bill, which is likely to be published quite soon after the election. So the first, repeal, repeal the European Communities Act. That's the act that took us into the European Union in 1972 and gives precedence to EU law over national law. And, of course, that's what people voting leave wanted stopping, and that's why we've got to repeal the European Communities Act 1972, and that will occur on Brexit Day. Secondly, the Great Repeal Bill will convert... It will convert the whole body of EU law into domestic law, the idea being that there will be a smooth and consistent and legally certain process for uh, businesses, employees. There will be, they will experience no difference on the 28th of March 2019 to the 29th, 30th of March 2019. So the whole corpus of EU law will be converted into UK law and will continue to apply. And the significance of that is obviously huge because EU law will continue to apply but will now become domestic law. But it will mean that if we fall out of the European Union in the chaotic way I described because there is a fight over money, if we fall out of the European Union, at least those 3.8 million EEA nationals, their rights will be protected because they will be protected under the Great Repeal Bill. But that doesn't help EU nat UK nationals who are currently living in other member states. So we do repeal, convert, and then thirdly, correct. 
And correct is the jargon for getting rid of those bits of EU law that we don't like anymore. And some of the corrections will be technical, um, others will be much more substantial. And here there's a lot of concern. You'll hear quite a lot about Henry VIII clauses. Now, Henry VIII, you may be familiar with for more for his domestic arrangements rather than his management of the British Constitution. But basically, Henry VIII didn't uh, have a great deal of respect for Parliament. And so um, he used to think that a few executive orders would do very nicely and circumvent the will of Parliament. And that's where the term has come from. Henry VIII clauses give power to the executive to amend acts of parliament. Um, and so there is a great concern that actually in the desire to take back control to the UK parliament, in fact, in order to deliver Brexit in a timely manner, i.e. by the 29th of March 2019, huge amount of executive action, so civil servant action, government action, but not parliamentary involvement. And that is why there is such concern. But the reality is, as Banksy put it in his most recent work in Dover, we are leaving and we've got to make the most of it. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm very happy to take um, some questions. We'll start with the gentleman there, and then um, if we start with the gentleman, I think it's yeah, gentleman there. Thank you very much for a very clear explanation of the current chaos. Can you please confirm, uh, my question is this question of confirmation that we have already committed ourselves to paying one-fifth of the debts of the European Central Bank and probably many other uh, organizations linked to the European Central Bank. Now, we don't know whether that's going to be a trillion or four trillion. And, and we've also got the very strong prospect of the euro collapsing, which will compound the problems associated with that. And there's an, an uh, extra point to that. Uh, Edward Heath was advised that under our constitution, and we do have a wonderful uh, constitution, it's in many parts, but it's still a constitution. Edward Heath was advised that he was, uh, should not, it was illegal for this country to sign up to the European Communities Act in 1972. And we've seen the reasons now why we were wrong to ever enter into a potential federal state rather than a common market. Okay, thank you. I'll take a couple of questions and I'll come back to them. So there was a gentleman there, and then um, there was a gentleman there, um, and, I'd, I'd, uh, and I'd like, I'd also like, a, 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 there's a lady there. So I'll take, I'll take four and then I'll deal with them. So the gentleman there first. Yes, um, very briefly, it looks from what you're saying as though the EU is uh, comfortable with a hard position which may lead to, as you dubbed it, a chaotic exit. Um, would it be chaotic for them as well as for us? Thank you. Thank you. The gentleman there. 
were the complexities and implications you've set out for us apparent to politicians and others before the Brexit discussion? <laughs> oh, oh. Or have they just appeared in the frenzy after it? Had they been apparent and had they been conveyed to the electorate, do you think the outcome might have been different? Thank you. And the, the lady in the okay. answer the question. Um, in my previous life, I spent a lot of time working on EU policy making. And on the 24th of June, after the referendum result, I sat down with my husband and went through what was likely to happen. I said, there is just no way, given all the things you've just been talking about and the complexity of the EU, we, we would have to go for something EEA-like as a long transitional to get through it because there's so much going on. Now, the point I wanted to make is, or the question for you, rather, um, is what is our position with the EEA? Because I get mixed messages whether everyone else has to agree to us staying in the EEA, or, and I'd be interested to know. The other thing I want to mention, just for public record, um, in working in the EU, the EEA members, so this is the Norways of the world, were actually very effective, and a lot of EU legislation comes from the international sphere. The EU is much more a law receiver, a law taker, than a law maker. And the UK can be quite influential at international level. So I, I've always seen the EEA as a possible transitional for a long time. Thank you for those. I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards and then, I'll, I'll, depending on our time, I'll, I'll take some more questions. In, in respect of your, your question, um, it's thought that um, we will have to withdraw from the EEA under Article 127, which gives us a 12-month uh, notification period. Uh, it's not clear whether there'll need to be a further act of Parliament to deliver that. Um, but even if we don't formally withdraw, um, the EEA agreement only applies to EEA states and EU member states, and therefore uh, we will not be bound. Um, the, uh, it looks likely that we will have to reapply to join EFTA, and there was a story in the Daily Express the day before yesterday. I don't usually give the Daily Express um, as a source of academic comment, but the Daily Express said that Norway has confirmed that we can... Um, uh, they're willing for us to rejoin EFTA. And I have it on good authority that this is actually a, state, a correct statement of fact. On your point about EU law receiving a lot of international law. That, I agree with that. That's absolutely right. So um, a lot of uh, the anti-terrorist uh, legislation has actually come from UN level, which is then filtered through EU law and has become binding on the UK. A lot of financial legislation um, comes from international agreements, which is then filtered through the EU and comes to the UK. The reality is that we are going to be bound by a considerable amount of international, so super, uh, still supranational legislation over which we do not have as much influence as we like. The UK is party to 14,000 international agreements, and of which the EU, of course, of a different order of magnitude, is just one. Um, in respect of your question, um, the, had, if people had known the complexities beforehand, would they um, have uh, gone ahead and would they have voted in this way? Um, I think... Um, there had been very little work done in advance just how complex the EU was and how complex the UK's interweaving into the EU has been. 
Um, and so um, I think you're absolutely right. People were not aware, politicians were absolutely not aware of how complicated this has been. It has been very striking to me in the public engagement work I've done, of which I've done a lot. I've done a lot of town hall events um, up and down the country that people, through no fault of their own, are very ill-informed about the EU, which is a, a terrible failing of our educational system for decades because there is no understanding about how the EU has worked. That said, a lot of people voted to leave because they felt that they had been failed by the system, they'd been failed by globalisation, of which the European Union was a manifestation. They've, they had not been listened to. It was very striking that 2.8 million voters registered to vote prior to the referendum who had not previously been on the electoral register. And it's thought that a very large majority of them voted to leave. And so it was the first time they felt they got their voice listened to. And I think we have to be very careful um, to, about making generalizations that for some people, it goes back to the point I said at the beginning, it's about identity and it's about the fact that they have their sense of loss of control. And for them, the complexity of trying to unpick these arrangements is what the civil service are paid to do and the government should just get on with. And so I'm not convinced um, that the outcome would have been so very different, even if people had been really very well informed, because some of the voting was a sort of visceral of we're fed up with the system that thinks it knows what's in our best interest. And for some, a lot of people, the, the EU system had not delivered what had been promised. So academics absolutely have benefited from the system because of free movement and um, the fact that uh, scientific discoveries have benefited from having international collaborative teams. But that works very well in Cambridge. It might not work so well in Boston and Spalding, where they felt that their way of life had been significantly um, affected by the high levels of migrants. Um, in respect of the question about um, hard Brexit, um, and surely it will be bad for the um, EU too, yes, absolutely true, because um, particularly if we walk away um, without paying a penny, um, the uh, hard Brexit is, will be, leave a significant hole in the EU's budget. Um, and, of course, we are an important trading market for the EU for their goods, it's certainly true that the EU sends more of its goods to the UK than the UK does to the EU, but it's important to remember that um, goods only count for 15% of our market. 80% of our market is now, or 70 to 80% is now services, and therefore we will be very, very affected if there's no deal in respect to the services sector, particularly in respect of financial services. So I think Brexit will be hard for the EU, but they're bigger than we are, and that's the um, uh, bottom line. In respect to the gentleman's question here, um, yes, absolutely, I agree with you that, of course, we have a constitution. We just don't have a written constitution, but you're right, we have a constitution, and it's in um, many parts and uh, documented in all sorts of texts. I can't give you um, detailed information about the ECB and the budget because I'm not an economist, I'm a lawyer, 
but I am told that there is a lot of concern about um, quite how much um, there is committed, not just in respect to the ECB, but also the European Investment Bank. Um, and at the moment that in the budget tally, um, the 100 billion doesn't take into account of the shareholdings that we have in these organizations. But I, I'm not um, sufficiently equipped to answer your question in detail. In respect of your point about Ted Heath, the advantage of having an unwritten constitution is that it's a, it's a changing and adaptable constitution. Um, and so, um, and it's certainly true, I have seen documents that suggest that Ted Heath was warned about the implications of giving EU law precedence over national law, um, but he thought it was a price worth paying. Remember, when we went into the European Union, our economy was in a pretty dire strait, and we were desperate to get in. We were so desperate to get in that, we, in fact, we agreed to what looks now to be very poor financial terms, which Margaret Thatcher did help to rectify in her budget renegotiations. But it is ironic, it seems to me, that we were desperate to get in, and so we agreed to a very poor financial settlement, very poor for the UK, very good for the French. Um, and it looks like now we're leaving, we're also so desperate to get out that we might end up with a very poor financial settlement too. And so we're in a pretty, pretty bad, bad shape. I'm just seeing how much... I'm realising my time is short. Am I about to be... I'll take one question there and one question there, and I think I'm probably going to have to stop. Uh, there was a gentleman um, there, and then there's a lady there. Uh, if somebody could have, offer the microphone to the lady. Uh, do, do I have the microphone, or...? Uh, yeah, there was a gentleman with the microphone, yeah. and then there's a lady with a, a lady with a scarf round her neck. A joke. Um, is, is there any significance to the uh, case which I read about was brought in Ireland, which is ultimately supposed to end up with a ruling that uh, Article 50 could be withdrawn? Article 50 could, could be, be denotified. We could we yeah. can denotify. Yeah. Okay. So can you can we withdraw from the Article 50 notification? Yes. And the lady there. Uh, earlier, in the, earlier in the week, Vera Farkas suggested that um, because of the timescale and because we're unprepared, the best thing to do would be to take one of the existing formats, Norway or Canada or whatever, and just use that because it would be very difficult for the EU to disagree with something they've already agreed and just do that. Of course, unfortunately, Mrs May has, has tied herself up, but presumably she could untie herself if she has to. Is that, is that, is that realistic? Thank you. So the first question was, um, can we denotify or can we withdraw um, our notification? Um, Article 50 doesn't say anything about that possibility. So the answer is nobody knows. Um, but it's thought that, um, and indeed evidence was given to the House of Lords Select Committee um, uh, before the referendum, that it would be possible to um, revoke the notification Two, so it, it, there are two possible scenarios. One, general election, a party gets into power that says we want to revoke um, Article 50. Now, there is no party that actually is saying that at the moment, so it looks like that is ruled out. So a democratic reason to withdraw the Article 50 notification. Second possibility is that a fortnight before, or a month before the end of March 2019, things are looking so bad 
that we um, say, right, we're going to pull the plug on the Article 50 not notification. Now, that might be seen to be abusive um, by the UK of the Article 50 process. Indeed, I've seen it argued just recently that instead of Theresa May saying no deal is better than a bad deal, she might really spook them by saying um, a bad, if we're offered a bad deal, what's worse, we'll stay. And <laughs> that... And given we've always been a thorn in the side, that may be a more poisonous threat than actually walking away with no deal. Um, in um, answer to your question, um, can we get an off-the-shelf model? Um, yes and no. I think sensibly, of course, to have an off-the-shelf model makes a lot of sense. And in one sense, it will be easier for the UK because the UK is already compliant with most of EU law. Um, or very nearly all of EU law, we're, we're very obedient members of the European Union. So yes, that certainly would be possible, but it's worth bearing in mind, as you said, Theresa May has ruled out the single market and has made non-subjection um, of ourselves to the European Court of Justice one of her red lines. Um, and so that would make the EEA model, the Norway model, very difficult, although it might be possible in a transitional period. But remember, the transitional period will span um, 2019 to 2022, which is, of course, when the next general election is due to take place. So that means do we fall back on ca the Canadian model? But the Canadian model is very poor for services. It's the deepest free trade agreement that the EU has got, but it still is very weak on services. It does have some services provisions in it, but not on financial services, and that is really important to the UK. So an off-the-shelf model actually does not suit necessarily suit the UK's interests, but it may be that we'll have to box and cox and take bits and pieces from existing agreements. I think my time is up, and I realise that um, I, we're going to be thrown out of here. So thank you very much indeed for your lively participation. <laughs> <laughs>